Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. Hello and welcome back to Startup Hustle with Matt Watson and Matt DeCourcy. How are you doing today, Mr. Watson? Oh, living the dream, I guess. You know, I'm pretty excited about today, and I hope you are too. I'm very excited. We've got a legend with mm, us today. Right. We do. Let's go ahead and introduce Laryl Holt. Hi, Laryl. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> We're glad to have you. I'm going to go ahead and uh, do a little of the heavy lifting on this introduction here. First off, I'm pretty excited about today's uh, episode because I've got someone here that participated in each of my books. So thank you to both of you guys, um, everyone, all eight people that read each book said great <laughs> things about both of uh, your contributions there. But what I'm really excited about today is to be here with Lyril, because Lyril is someone that I really look up to as an entrepreneur has, that has found success in so many different ways. Um, one of the more notable ones is being the founder of CarStar, which uh, we're going to twist his arm and make us make him tell us more about that. But Lyra's also currently the CEO of Motion U and uh, several other companies that do things of all different shapes and forms. So maybe wow. he maybe he has he might have entrepreneurial wow. ADD like like Matt and I, but we'll get more into that. So Lyra, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your story. Hey, I, I'm, you know, I'm just a guy looking for something to do and haven't worked for anybody else since I was 21 years old, uh, totally unemployable, totally, <laughs> you know, uh, and really a coward at heart. I mean, a sincere coward, um, try and find something nobody else is doing so that, uh, you know, they leave me alone, let me do it. <laughs> uh, so through the years, you know, try and take something that, uh, you know, needed to be done something that had been walked past, and then uh, think it through. Um, and then at some point, step over the line and make it happen, it being a product or a business. So that's a real simple background. A coward, coward is who you're talking to today. It's interesting that you refer to yourself, because I actually think you're pretty brave. A lot of the things that you've done required so much work and effort. You know, we got into some of that in the book interview. Um, most notably, like I remember you talking about starting CarStar, and I believe you said you started that in your garage. Is that that's correct, right? Well, it, almost. It was about thirty feet away at the kitchen table, and I'd been teaching business for the 3M company across the United States. And I came back, and the gig was up. So the um, I sat with my wife at the kitchen table, and I have a lot of automotive background. And I said, you know, nobody's taken body shops. I think we ought to do that. Now, this is 100 years ago. And again, Coward Mark, <laughs> I looked around and I said, you know, nobody's done anything with this. There ought to be an industry there. And so with her confidence um, and, uh, you know, triple mortgage on our home, which is a copy of what Ghostbusters recommended to do. Everybody needs a triple mortgage on their home. Well, we started CarStar and, you know, the, began to build. So at that time, um, if if I had been a, had a wreck with my car or whatever, was it hard to find a body shop? There just wasn't a, there wasn't a national chain. It wasn't a, 
Did right the car dealers then. not do it, or like what was the you're, situation? You're, you're bang on. Um, it was a different era. You know, there was no internet. There was no rating systems. It was, well, who do you know? And the first thing you did is ask somebody, oh, golly, I had an accident today. Where do I go? And nobody really knew. Nobody could confirm anything. The science of business hadn't been applied yet. And so my wife and I thought that if we could put together a group of shops that were essentially honest, they did good work, then we could make a market offer to people, you know, city by city by city and even country by country. And it wound up being that way. So did you create those stores in every market or were they franchises or did you acquire existing body shops or how did you grow that? Yeah, you know, it was a hybrid system. We knew we didn't have enough money to go ahead and do the, you know, the, the ground up, the green field, to bring them up out of the dirt like a McDonald's would, would do, at least not first. And so what we did is we used a, an odd tool called conversion franchising, where you take an existing business and you relabel it and you teach the people your systems and the methods of business. And so we started that way. And then we reached the point where we began to buy businesses and began to build the the uh, greenfields from the ground up. So we used a whole lot of different business tools that are very uncommon. They're not commonly put together to build the business. So your sister-in-law, Gail, worked at one of my businesses for almost two years. And throughout that process, I got I learned a little bit about the Car Star story, and you know, I know that she had participated in. She worked with you. Was it nineteen years or a long time? Long time. Yeah, well, and she was there after I left. And you know, some of the things that she noticed about the business that, that we were working out at the time, and you know, were just the the parts involving protocol. And, you know, the standardization of what you're doing. And we were always trying to do that. I always say anytime you have a new business or a startup, the problem is it doesn't come with an owner's manual. Now, that was one of the things, one of the problems that you helped solve for all these stores, wasn't it? Creating a standardized set of procedures and protocol or? It was. And a system is not a system unless it's in writing. And I was fortunate enough to have her come aboard very or actually before the company started. And I gave her the mandate to document everything, put it in operating manuals. And, and man, it's hard. Yeah. Nobody wants to do that right. stuff. I mean, nobody wants to do it. Yeah, nobody wants to read them either. And, no, and no, you're, Matt, you're absolutely right. <laughs> nobody wants to meet them. So what we did is we went, uh, we would put a group in front of a, in, in a room, and we would talk about the importance of knowing the systems and living the message and uh, and. We started with a real basic message is we do things honestly. We're not going to cheat anybody. We're not going to be known for that. You know, what do you stand for? What are you going to do? We never taught a lick of technology to the stores related to how to repair a car. Everything we taught uh, or conveyed to a franchisee or a company store was about business. It was about marketing. It was about the control of the front office. It was about doing a better job at finance. It was about job costing. Did we make any money on this? Um, and, and Gail was just unbelievable because she didn't know boo about it. And that was probably one of the best things that happened. She would interview me, grill me, and we would sit and work for hours and hours and days and days until we got the systems. You know, where we so I mean, th this relates directly to 
all forms of business, even technical startups, right? Like the product side of it was easy. Like, okay, we know how to repair the car. It was the go-to-market strategy running the business that was actually the really complex part of it, right? And and well, that's where that's your a, That's a common problem. That's a yeah. common problem in business. We all have. Well, a lot of times people start a business related to something that they're good at or they're passionate about, but they don't know a darn thing about running a business. So, and I don't know, you know, if that was the major problem, but I would imagine a lot of people said, Hey, I'm good at fixing cars. People start asking you to fix cars. So then, Hey, I can make, do a living at this, you know, make a living at this. And now all of a sudden you've got to manage a business. You got to pay taxes. You have payroll, you have rent, you have a lease, you know, you have all these different things. And it's like, how do we deal with this? How how do we store all this information? They didn't know how to scale it. Yeah. Now, speaking of scaling, I, the, probably the most impressive thing that I'd ever heard was you guys started, here you are, you're hustling this business in your out of your home. 18 months later, you had a pretty significant amount of locations already, didn't you? We did. We uh, moved into an area that you guys would know. It's in the Kansas City area called Corporate Woods. Um, and there was some accidental space that we got that made it look uh, made us look a whole lot better than we were. And then we put the systems together and then we, you know, we filed, we, we uh, read everything we could on franchising. We found an attorney who said, okay, I'll write the Uniform Franchise Offering Circular, which is the, le- the legal document that you need in order to do this. But I'm telling you, I'll take your money, but this thing won't work. And that was pretty doggone. I'll never forget that day when I went, oh, my God, what am I doing? And I told him, just do it. And it's stepping across that line. So we we had to have the not only the process and the systems, but we had to provide legal documents in order to get the people to work with us. And the bad thing was we had to tell them everything about ourselves on paper, hand it to them, and you couldn't talk to them for 10 days. Can you imagine making a sale where you go, here's how bad we are, and I'll come back in 10 days? Why is that? Well, it's the law. You know, that's why franchising is such uh, as they tighten the laws on franchising to get rid of the, oh, everybody thinks, well, I'll franchise this. They have no idea what it takes to franchise at the federal level. And then the different states have laws. And so we encountered this. This was a massive undertaking. And we did it, I think, primarily with just sheer will and working really hard on knowing what the hell we were doing. Uh, so we came out of the gate and we did 100 stores in the first year. That's incredible. I mean, that's not just incredible. That's improbable, so, amazing, and probably overwhelming. So how did you begin to deal with that? Because, all right, so here you are on day one, and then a year later, now you got got 100 stores. You're pretty viable at this point. But I can imagine that that probably forced you to learn even more stuff faster. What were some of the hidden surprises? What were some of the things that you just had no clue? (laughs) Oh, my God. Do we need a list? "Ah!" (laughs) Every day I'd walk in and, you know, kind of switching gears, come back to that. But a CEO can't let people know when he's when he's scared to death. And I would walk into the uh, office every day and people look to me to know what we were doing. And you've got to the old you've got to fake it till you make it, man, I wasn't even, you know, I wasn't even there, but just learning how to go poker face. We encountered so many things legally, financially, um, 
But, but I have to tell you, it goes back to we were prepared. It took a year and a half to get prepared. And the, there is a side story to this. I had a company already running. So we had, and we knew a lot about the industry. And I had a Harvard doctor, a DBA, come in and work with me for about a year and a half um, in the startup phase before we ever got out of the gate. So you went a year and a half before you even brought it out to the it, market. We worked on it probably two and a half years before we, we took it to market. And I learned a lot from the Harvard DBA. Um, and one thing I learned is you can wait away yourself out of business. Mm -hmm. I would still be thinking it over and working on the models if he were here. I love him, loved him pieces, learned a lot from him. But at some point, it was all our money and not his. We had to pull the trigger and we went. What was the thing that made you pull that trigger? Was it just like, hey, did, was it knowing that you're never going to make a sale if you never open or was it something different? Well, I think that <laughs> I think two things. One is we were running out of money. We spent so much time getting ready. And there's a whole lot to that. You know, just stepping across the line won't do it. You've got to be prepared. The old Boy Scout model is pretty, pretty close to right. Be prepared. So we had written the systems. We knew it. I knew the industry. I had worked my way through college restoring exotic cars and had run a created a big body shop. I'd done that. I knew what what the stores were going to face. And yeah, I you just at some point, that's the difference between an entrepreneur and a wannabe. Everybody's got an idea, but at some point, like in Ghostbusters, it says, you know, when they walk out of the bank and the guy says, I'm worried, and the other guy says, eh, everybody's got a triple mortgage on their home at this point. I don't think we triple mortgage, but the deal is there is an amount of courage or stupidity or <laughs> persistence and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, Matt, I'm looking at you. I know what you did at Venn Solutions. And later on, we were in the same building. Mm -hmm. Man, your persistence, you are just freaking persistent. Well, there's three guys sitting at this mic today. Um, and we're just freaking <laughs> persistent. I didn't say we're smart. That's a word that gets thrown my way a lot. Persistent. It's a lot of hard work. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. like a dog on a bone. Just keep just keep going after it. And it, you know, it comes in a lot of different forms. You know, there, you're, you're, Mr. Watson, your kind of persistence is a little different than mine. I mean, I'm the guy that'll just keep asking. Like, I, I might ask you to come be on the podcast so many times that you'll just come do it. So I'll quit asking. No. But, you know, <laughs> if that's what it takes, that's fine. Unless you tell me to stop asking, I just assume that it's still okay. But that's that kind, you know, and that's a sales persistence. That's, you know, like I, if you ask me to stop, I'll stop. I'm not trying to, you know, mm -hmm. stalk people or no, do stuff courteous. like that. But it's that, it's that approach. And, you know, the thing is, is also, being persistent to the point that you're also not destroying everything in your path or leaving, you know, scorched ground behind you. Um, you know, Matt, your persistence is as, as a problem solver in a lot of regards. And that always impresses me because what you do as a developer takes so much patience. I always tell people, people always ask me if I program, if I'm a programmer, Laurel, and I say I would have a pile of broken computers in a corner because mm -hmm. I don't have that kind of persistence. That, would, that persistence would just turn into frustration and maybe then anger. What do you write? Checks. Not code. <laughs> I write checks, not code. And I think Laryl <laughs> might be in that club with me and some of that. Yeah, you know, I'm a good planner uh, related to 
related to getting ready to go. After we go, there are other people that I can fill in the gaps behind me. Um, a CEO, I heard it said recently that a CEO should be living a year or two ahead of the group. You've got to have vision uh, to, to see where it can go. And, you know, everybody says, and you have to communicate that. I disagree. I think sometimes you don't because people will be very afraid because to have vision means to have the ability to know you're going to have to change. And a lot of people don't want change. They want to walk in and do the same thing eight to five. Not everybody has that vision or that that desire to be an entrepreneur. It's a rare gene. So that so that's an issue I have even with my own team, right? Like they're busy doing whatever they're doing, and they can't handle those random moments when you walk by their office and you want to throw some weird idea at them. So how do you, how do you deal with that? You have any advice? Yeah, you have to figure out. I think you make it on the hire. And if we hadn't made it on the higher car star, we wouldn't have gotten to 100 stores in the first year. And and then we did get to right at $400 million in revenue that flowed through the system. Uh, and we had about, at that time, 4,000, 4,500 people, you know, in all these stores across North America. How many stores, was, how many locations was that at that point? When I left, we had 350-ish. When I came out of the, and I stayed on the board for a while. Um, but, you know, hey, look, I'm not... I'm not brilliant. I mean, I get a whole lot of credit for being brilliant. Cowardness has helped me a lot going where they are, you know, be where they are, come up with something that somebody hasn't done. Don't fight the battle. Don't try and beat Goliath. Uh, So come up with something. Research the crap out of it till you really know it, till you just taste it. And then at some point, step over the, you know, see how much dough you've got. Oh, and I have people come in there all the time. They're worried about money. Well, how much money is it? No, no, no. Get the idea and and see if you, you're passionate about it. If you're not, then don't worry. They come in all the time talking about money, money. Don't worry about the money. You know, get an idea. And I, then, I believe the money is a byproduct of doing a good job. Do you guys both agree with that? Like if you don't, if the first thing you need to do to make more money is to stop trying to make money, be, get good at something, be the best at what you do, be diligent because sitting there and being worried about how much you're getting paid or what you're this or that, that's not, you're not getting any better at what you do doing that. It's like they say, don't sit there and look at your investments all day. Cause it just makes you sick. You know, yeah. like it goes up, it goes down, but you have, if you're great at what you do, or even if it's just being diligent, you're going to end up making money. I mean, you want to chase the problem and you want to chase the customers first, right? But at some point in time, depending on your type of business, you have to have money and you have to have capital. I mean, so how did, how did you go from where you were to having 100 stores and took a couple of years of, of planning? You know, how did, how did you guys, did you, did you guys have capital? Did you have a raise capital or? Didn't borrow a dime. Nothing until we got wow. out, until we got in deep trouble. it's gonna come you're exactly right at some point you've got to go for help well i had uh, overrun my knowledge and my experience and overrun my money and so we were watching it day to day and we were selling we had to keep selling in order to foot the daily bills but we weren't gaining on it at at some point so uh, a friend of mine here in town had uh, had done it before, Barnett Hellsberg, who's just a great guy, um, and was building a mentoring organization. And I asked him his opinion on it. And he had a, I spoke at an MBA uh, session, and 
then ask Barnett. And one of the guys that was there was his next door neighbor. Barnett had double booked us to speak at this MBA thing. And the guy's name was Hank Fragone, and he had run an $8.5 billion company. And he listened to what I had to say. And that night at Rockhurst University, he said, uh, walked up and said, can I talk to you about your business? I think it's interesting. The next morning at 8 o'clock, we had uh, breakfast, and he said, what's your biggest problem? I said, I'm going to run out of money. He said, I'm sure you are. I'll help you. So we formed, and this guy had run. He bought Marshall Fields' department store chain. He had owned Farmers Insurance. He would uh, Nautilus. He'd owned Nautilus. He owned Cole's department stores. And so he became one of the top five mentors in my life. And uh, there's a long story that really we don't have enough time. But anyway, he said, we got to get money. And we found he went out, helped me. And we found boutique money um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And we began to bring the money in. And I went, and I, I realized that we'd gotten above my head because there was a need for a financial, a real strong financial guy leading at that point. I was the face of the company. I knew the company. I knew the systems. I knew the people. Loved the helping the frontline guys out there. But I wasn't really the top-line money guy. What was the thing that – so I think for a lot of people listening, you're going to hear, oh, wow, you have 100 locations. You have 150 locations. How the hell are you running out of money? I mean, right. what, 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 what was the cause of that? I mean, is it, was it just the money was needed to continue growing or sometimes people just overcommit? Yeah, yeah, uh, a lot, all of that and more. Um, what, what happened is after we got the stores, we would make money, but it was because we had a percentage that was coming through, but it took a while to overcome the expense of going out and getting them. Um, we were burning faster than we were getting and then if we could stay in the game, at some point, we almost had to stop growing and let the money catch up with us. And But we thought it was a dash, too. We thought we would have some other competitors that were more better funded than we were that could come after us. And so we were in a sprint. We weren't. And here it is, I think, 27 years later. Um, and we built it to last, too. We, we were building. So we dedicated money to educate the stores. We we had to do a lot of things that we didn't know how to do, and we didn't do them very well. We spent, and we didn't, boy, we didn't take a lot of money ourselves. No, we didn't. We kept putting it back in the business, but nevertheless, we were underfunded when we went. And so at some point, you got to go get the money, and we, we went and got it, and, and things continued. And I realized that we thought we would take it public, and we never did. What do you think the the biggest key for someone trying to raise money for their business is? Or at least one, yeah. what's the best advice that you would give? Because that's, that's a question that Matt and I run into a lot for people that are starting a business or maybe even asking us to participate in it is how do I do this? Or just, you know, they seem very uneducated or, uh, and experience with the process. So. You don't raise money very often. You know, how many times do you go through it? Well, once for to get a company out of the ground, uh, up out of the ground, you reach in your pocket or you go to your relatives or you do whatever you're going to do. You go down the bank and borrow on your cars, whatever, to get your little small entity going in a startup phase. But at some point, if it's going to scale, 
Um, Matt brought that up. If it's going to scale, you need to know how to get the money. Well, most people don't. And so that's a problem. I've found there are three problems in any company that's a startup that goes out, and they're pretty pretty easy to see. The obvious one is at some point you're going to need money to, to go on. The second one is setting the price on the product because you don't know how to price a new product. If you're brand new in a market and you don't have anything to push against. And the third one is how do you pay the sales force? If you have a sales force out there, how do you commission people? I see it, seen it for years and years and years, all of those problems. So for me, I got help. I think that guys are smarter. We hear a lot in the tech community. I think they're surrounded by people with money and they can get more education. At the time, you had to go get a book. You couldn't get on the internet. You had to know somebody that would help you. And there weren't that many companies coming out, not at the pace they are. You know, it's uh, in, in Million Dollar Bedroom, I did an interview with a guy named Jim Olofsson, who is actually my uncle. And he was one of the pioneers in the concept of the model home for builders. And, uh, you know, in year one, they're running a building company and a trailer. And five years later, they're ringing the bell. And uh, um, with that, I, I've asked him for my whole life, what's the best advice you can give me as a business owner? And he, he will always tell me the same thing. He says, you got to always hire people that are smarter than you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's like, the, I mean, that's like the one thing it's just over and over again. And even in the book, he says that. And like some of the other things, too, is like you mentioned earlier, talking about winning on the hire, you know, and and uh, I think that that's a problem that a lot of people have. What's the what's the thing that you look for most when you want to hire someone or, mm -hmm. or even or maybe even have be a partner with someone? Well, there um, I found that I'm not a good I don't do good hires. Um, at Carstar, it was really funny. Uh, we, we were desperate because we were growing. So people would I'd say, well, we need this person. Let's flesh out the org chart here. And so somebody would come over and <laughs> be the first person at the door. And I would go, oh, man, they're great. Hire them right now because, you know, we're desperate. You know, we got to go. And <laughs> I had two or three people go, hold on, Larry, Hold on. Hold your horses there. And then the second person would come in. And I go, oh, man, I see why you're holed up. Hire that person right now. They go, hold on, hold on. Well, the real trick to think, what I found over the years is never, never interview, never hire unless you've interviewed at least five people. And that's after you've gone through the resumes and, and you know, started to funnel and worked it down until you get to at least five people. And then you're hiring on uh, attitude, too. You know, they're... I, I have a big matrix of several different items, but don't hire the first person. Uh, don't hire, uh, you can hire the best person you know, or the best person for the job. In the case when I started out and you know Gail, I hired the best person I knew. And I just, it turned out that I got the best person I could have had too. I, I saw that woman work so hard and literally break down and cry. I wore that poor lady out, and she just gave everything there. Yes, she's told me. Oh, man. <laughs> no, Gail was a pleasure to work with, and the thing that made me want to hire her is um, she's, well, she's my neighbor, mm -hmm. um, and she had already had experience in my industry, which we thought it was really weird that we moved into a new home and in such a small business like ticket brokering that the people, the lady that lived behind us worked for a ticket broker, so we hired her. 
uh, why not? I'll but, hop the fence and yeah, get, get hired. Well, she worked yeah. at my house. That was when yeah. the million dollar bedroom had turned into the million dollar basement. Yeah. And that was before we actually, <laughs> then, then my wife wanted to get crazy and have kids and we got, the business got kicked out of the house. So, you know, that's the way that that goes. But the thing was, that I noticed with her as I actually got to observe her, she's like the Energizer Bunny. Her and Steve are always busy doing something. Mm-hmm. And that's a good quality to have, especially in an organizational per- person. You know, Gail organized a lot of the purchases and did a lot of the shipping. And that's very detail oriented because if you have 50 packages you're about to send out and you miss one, then the next 48 might have the wrong mm-hmm. item in them. And I can't do it. I'm terrible. Like, well, I can't, I, and Matt and right, I talked right. about that. I'm not a, I'm, I'm organized in my very unorganized way. Like I know this drawer has the piece of paper in it that I want. <laughs> so I'm good there if I ever need to find it, but they're not in a thousand different files. So, so having someone like that was always good for me. So let me ask you this. It sounds like a, a big part of your success with CarStar was your ability to train all of these franchises and build a system for them. And, and, um, Today you have some 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 businesses that seem mm-hmm. very aligned with that, and so is that kind of what has mm-hmm. brought you into having these new businesses that are very aligned in online learning and education? Yeah, I have uh, s- roughly six different companies now. They they would be considered small to small to medium, and know absolutely nothing about most of them. You know, it's I found found a place that people aren't doing things. I'd like to mention one company that we did that knew nothing. After 9-11, and I was out of CarStar, except I think I was still on the board then after that, stayed on the board for many years. Um, After 9-11, I took a group of people. We had company and took about, I don't know, 15 people in a room. It was in that building that we were at over there, Matt, you know, that you and I cohabitated there for a while. And I said, here's the whiteboard. If we ever had a 9-11 again, what business should we be in? that we wouldn't be killed because 9-11 took a company that we had about a million bucks invested in and we just threw it over our shoulder and said, that's it, we're done because it was a nice to have, wouldn't work. Wouldn't work at after, and I just said, well, you know, everybody has an idea to burn a million bucks and I burn it right there. It wouldn't work after 9-11. That's the quote of the day. Everyone has an idea to burn a million bucks because yeah. it's true. Well, um, <laughs> we, the three of us have probably done that. So anyway, <laughs> sounds the, about right. The, so I said, what industry should we be in? And we put the industries that we should be in and automotive. I knew business. I knew in general business, but what we put on the wall and I really won't, won't say but every one of those businesses we knew nothing about. I mean, nothing. And right now, every one of them were either in or have been in. And so it's, there's, there's, uh, you got to think, a CEO's got to be a year or two ahead of everybody. Got to be looking out there, thinking ahead. I want to talk a little more about the stuff you're doing now. But before that, I think I'd like to, for our listeners, resolve the car star story just because that ended well i believe it did um and with that you what year did you sell carstar well i was out of the uh i stayed in carstar till about i don't know 2000 ish something like that then was on the board for a number of years after and it's going strong i think they have i don't know five six hundred stores in north america i would have thought they would have grown faster but uh competition came in. I understand. And I try and stay away from that. Once you leave, it's like the the guy that wrote the book, you can't go home again. 
don't try and go back. You know, very few guys can do it. Steve Jobs could do it, but most people aren't Steve Jobs. You can't go back and run. So every once in a while, they'll call me up and say, hey, would you come speak about something? Okay, great. But it's not mine anymore. That that shift's, uh, ship has left. So I was happy to, I'm, I'm so happy every day I get up. I'm so happy because I get to go create things. And for me, the creation, the build is so much fun that I'm glad I did that. But man, the world moves. Stephen King said, the world moves on and the smart ones don't try and march in place. So they, I think there are, I don't know how many stores, I think it's pushing up like 900 million, a billion dollars, something like that, that is the flow through. But you know what? I get tired of talking about CarStar and I always get, you guys, everybody wants to know how you did hard work, hard work. Um, it's a pretty simple answer. Yeah, I mean, and I agree. People, I, I get that a lot. They're like, I hate it when people say, oh, well, you're lucky. You've done really well. I'm like, I did not feel lucky when I completed yeah. that 103rd hour last week. You know, I don't, don't feel lucky when I was up at three in the morning working last night because I was doing shit that yep. no one else was willing or there to do. And I mean, for me, that's what's done it. Like you get back to that persistence and, you know, Mr. Watson, you're the exact same way. Cause sometimes I'm actually having instant chat with you. What are you doing? Oh God, I'm just trying, I'm, I'm writing code and I'm also, you know, mm -hmm. doing this and, and I'm talking to you. What are you doing? Well, I'm peeling back this, you know, Laurel, I said a couple of weeks ago that <laughs> being a startup founder or an entrepreneur is a lot like an onion. The further you get into it, the more you cry. Mm -hmm. And uh, so now I just, you know, I'm, if people ask me what I do from now on, I'm just going to say that I'm an onion peeler. <laughs> onion peeler. Good. And I think that that's, it's, it feels right. Now, hopefully you get to cry because the center of that onion is something worth crying about mm -hmm. and not just tears of pain and agony. Now, your companies that you that you do now solve some other specific yeah. needs. Let's let's uh, wrap this episode of Startup Hustle up mm -hmm. by talking about a few of those because I think it's really interesting how you went from automotive to some of the stuff that you do now because it's definitely mm -hmm. not related. Well, you know, I mentioned that we had had the uh, the meeting and we had multiple meetings on what we should be in, and one was that we ought to be in government because if government's gone, everything's done. So we sent a put a put a young man, brilliant young man here in town, uh, in a car. Bought a bought a car for him to drive, and I said, "Go out and drive all over the Midwest. Go to every little city that you can find, and ask them, find out how they're learning, what they're doing." So he did. He came back and he said, "Man, these guys are where are on green screens. It's awful. It's terrible." And I said, "Good. We're ahead of the curve." So we built training for cities and counties across, and nobody had done it. I mean, federal, we were, if we went federal, we'd have to compete with Boeing and some of the big guys that have learning management systems. And what were you training them to do? Well, we didn't know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know training, so let's do that. So we began to write courses, uh, Robert's Rules of Water, and then uh, a police course, and, and, and police, police guys jumped on it. And before long, we were writing courses for police and and uh, city and county officials, different things. And, and the, uh, of all things, it took off. And the 2013 Chamber of Commerce's Business of the Year approached us and said, you have done such a great job on this. We want to buy the company. 
So that company went to California. We retained equity in it. Uh, we still keep all of the software up on the servers and everything for them. Great company, great relationship. They had more marketing than we did. And so we had built the biggest uh, online training for city and counties in the U.S. And we, you know, so that's one, but it's gone. Then the other are we do abuse prevention for children and vulnerable adults. It's in about 4,000 uh, congregations now. And it um, is methodology to protect kids from people who would do them harm and how background checks and collection of resumes. Another company is Congregation U, and it, um, it teaches uh, faith-based organizations how to run the thing as a business. It doesn't matter whether it's a Christian or Islamic or Jewish or Hindu. It doesn't matter. How do you run a church or a congregation? And then we have, uh, we've been training uh, kids in the automotive industry for 15 years, We'll train about 175,000 kids in, in safety and environmental that they'll be leaving their career technical centers and going into the job market. So we train them. Uh, we've trained more people on automotive safety and environment uh, in the last six or seven years than was trained since the car was invented. And nobody knows we're here. And then spinoff of that is we build a resume course for these young people teaching them how to be proud, have a resume, and now the resume is turned into a database and we're helping those young people bridge the gap to a work environment, to jobs, to careers out there. We just had a recent uh, OEM hook up with us and that's not fully formed, but we've got about 25,000 kids in that, biggest database on the planet of kids that are ready to go. Into then the one that I love and I'm trying to get it hooked up is Motion U. I'm tracking, trying to track every automotive event on the planet. And this year we'll close out with about 250,000 events. Um, and nobody, nobody's ever done it. But, so we're looking at the automotive industry in a totally different manner. It's like having a fish finder and you can see clusters of, we're tracking 22,000 vehicle clubs around the planet. And we know there's more. So Anyway, I, I was, some of the and I'll put links to all of your stuff on the startuphustle.xyz website because there's a lot. You know, I, I really just re I realized something other than being an onion peeler, you're in the business of providing people with the tools they need to succeed. We are. And that is definitely the, the, the central element of all of those businesses, everything from the training to maybe the business structure and stuff like that. So. Interesting. Yeah, it's all online learning. Congratulations, Lara. We have finally figured out what you do. Yippee! <laughs> so um, you're, you're, you no longer can say I'm a coward. You give people the tools. And I, I, I don't still don't understand that analogy because I, I think of the bravery of, of heading into um, things that are unknown. If you have to give some advice well, and I also would like you to also let us know, you, you had said something to me about ships and the harbor as well um, that has always stuck with me. And I'll let you say it because you're, you're much better than I. But if you had to give anybody 10 cents of advice or two sentences, that's what that's worth, I think, what would it be? And also, uh, do you remember the ships in the harbor? It's yeah. probably a, a ship is safest in the harbor. 
but that's not what ships are for. So, um, yeah, I think that we're not getting out of this thing alive anyway. Do what you do. Create something. Uh, uh, find joy. Uh, smile at people. You know, maybe, maybe more the, important than anything is, is smile and, and be nice to people. Uh, that'll take you a long way. I think that that's an important thing, too. I was, um, you know, I'm working on another book, and it's related to the music industry. And one of the things that seems to be a recurring theme is, you know, being polite and and courteous and having people root for your success goes a tremendously it it really helps. And, you know, that's something that you you don't know who's going to be your partner, your helper, or your biggest advocate down the road. And with that, you know, that I, that's why I spend a lot of time talking to startup hopefuls and you do too, Matt, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I mean, these are people that we don't even know. And I do that because I have people like you, right? That have to you didn't ever have to sit down with me and do the book or anything. And you've been one of my mentors and, and stuff like that. And I have learned a tremendous amount of stuff. And I, I'd like to pass that through. You know, I think that I don't want to, it was like the free coffee I got at Starbucks the other day from the car in front of me. I wasn't going to not buy the coffee for the people behind <laughs> me. I don't want that to stop. I actually ended up negative $8 and 50 cents on that whole hustle. And but never felt better. I felt. I told Matt yeah. too. I said I got here to the offices. Man, I feel great about it. Do, <laughs> do you have Do you have a, a tidbit? This has been. This has been so informative. Uh, how about you? Because you guys are. You guys are both my entrepreneurial heroes. So I, I'm doing this more for me than the listeners. Well, I think Laurel's obviously not a coward. But the the thing that I think of when when he says that with that analogy is. Um, not trying to go out there and compete with the Facebooks of the world, all this. Like so many entrepreneurs think that they've got to create the next Facebook or whatever. And, yeah, and, and, and the part that, that rings with home with me is the, you know, looking for opportunities that are out there that just other people aren't capitalizing on. And if you have knowledge and experience in those things that can make them happen, you know, I always say that a lot of money is made in the niches, right? Yeah. That it's, um, you know, if somebody makes a ton of money importing feathers, yeah, from we, South talk, we, America, talked about, we talked about that in the book. Yeah, you know, it's um, I, you know, some friends here that have software to um, do pilot training, and it's like all these weird random things. And there's a million ways to make money, and creating the next Facebook is not the one you should be focused on, right? It's absolutely to Laurel's go, point, go you're not thing. cowards, R- but riches go, in the niches. Yeah, yeah, find find the places where there's not as much competition, and you can go own that market. Did you learn a couple things today, Mr. Watson? Absolutely. It's fantastic to have the legend here. Laurel, I, I, I really can't say thanks. I really appreciate I, I I'm going to say thanks, but I can't say thanks enough. Um, I think that this is, I, I really enjoy this. I've always taken so much out of your, your calming way of telling me that I'm not crazy. That's the way I'm hearing it. So, um, but I do appreciate your time. And I uh, think that everyone listening will as well. You're welcome. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.